Well, hello, and uh, good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles um, to Psalm 73. It's indeed a joy this morning, um, a joy and a privilege to be sharing God's Word with you all. And, uh, and before I begin, I just want to acknowledge and give thanks to, um, to God for Dave and the pastoral team here, and, uh, because without them, I wouldn't be standing here. And these guys preach the gospel faithfully week in, week out, and I've been a beneficiary of that. And, um, but not only that, they, they live, they breathe the gospel and, um, and, bring, make, and make the word come to life and have power. And, um, and I've been a beneficiary of, of such faithful Christ-centered preaching and ministry. So I give thanks to God for, for these guys. So thank you. Um, well, one of the privileges of uh, being my first uh, sermon here at Sovereign Grace uh, Warunga is I can preach on anything I wanted to. And, and so the Lord put on my heart Psalm 73. And uh, it's my joy to preach this psalm to you. It's been dear to my heart and has been a balm for my soul when I look back at one of the darkest periods in my life. And uh, so it's a joy to share this psalm with you this morning. Let's read Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes fall out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, and loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to 
glory. Whom I have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Well, Father, Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Every word is breathed out by you, inspired by you. So, Lord, every word is precious and valuable, useful for teaching and correcting and stirring and arousing our affections for you. Well, thank you, Jesus, that you have opened the way through the spilling of your precious blood to come to our Heavenly Father this morning. The Holy Spirit, help us this morning. We need you. We depend on you. So come, open the eyes of our hearts, stir and arouse our affections for Jesus this morning. Come and fill your word with power, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, one of the facts often mentioned in this pulpit is that we live in one of the richest suburbs in one of the richest cities of one of the richest countries on this planet. And so it's easy for us to envy, to look on at our neighbors and say to ourselves, isn't that good? Wish I could have that. Whether it's the latest gadget, that house next door, that house we see as we run along the streets, the next renovation, whether it's a lifestyle, or a quality of life of a holiday. And even if we don't say it out loud, it's something that's always tugging at our hearts. The dangers of envy is that it leads to doubt. Doubt in the goodness of God. We look over the fence and we feel that the faithless, those who aren't following Jesus, doing well, laughing and lapping up life, whilst those who are faithful and following Jesus are struggling, suffering, and just trying to make things get by. And so we may be tempted to give up because it's all too hard, or perhaps dangerously, thinking that the faithful are just getting by and living an inferior, secondary life. As we approach Psalm 73 this morning, the good news is that we are not alone or unique in being tempted to feel that way. Asaph, the writer of a psalm, experienced something very similar. Well, who's Asaph? He's essentially the worship leader for the congregation of Israel, a prominent Levite, singer in the King David's court, and the chief of the Levites, appointed to minister before the Ark of the Lord. He's essentially the one who leads the worship of God in the presence of his people, if you like, he'd be the, the modern-day equivalent of Bob Coughlin of Southern Grace. And, um, and in short, the psalm journeys through Asaph's doubt and struggles as he surveys life of the wicked and faithless and compares it to his own. And he nearly slips 
nearly stumbles. But then he enters the sanctuary of God. And he spends time with God, spends time with his people, and everything changed. And his final exclamation in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So what Asaph learned, there's also a lesson for us too this morning, that there is nothing more satisfying, more rewarding, and more joyful than knowing him. He is truly the one who satisfies. So I've entitled today's message, God is my best portion in all of life. And three points. Point one, envy, the joy robber. Point two, God, the joy giver. And point three, sanctuary, the place of joy. So point one, envy, the joy robber. Let's read with me verse one to three. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, the psalm starts with Asaph, the worship leader, declaring in verse 1 that truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But by verse 2, we already read, but as for me, my feet has almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And verse 3 tells us why. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here we see the source of the problem. He knew in his head that God is good, but in his heart he's stumbling, all because of envy. He looks on. He looks on at the prosperity of the wicked, of the faithless, and those who don't know God, those who don't follow him, and they are prospering all the while the faithful are just trying to get by and, and, and suffering. And so Asaph envies them. He looks over the fence and just wishes to have what they have. And the, and the psalm outlines in verse 4 to 12 the reasons why he is so envious of them. They are healthy and have no struggles in life. Verse 4 and 5. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, meaning they're well looked after. They're not in trouble. They're carefree and not stricken like the rest of mankind. In verse 6 and 7, we read that they are proud and they live in extravagant excesses. Verse 6, they are proud of their status in life and prestige and self-made fortune and wore their pride like necklaces for everyone to see. We read that violence is their garment. They're engaged in unfair means and practices of getting what they want because they can and they get it for all to see. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. Now, this picture is not very attractive in the 21st century, right? <laughs> but it actually denotes self-indulgent excess and prosperity. And their hearts continually overflow with more ideas how to get richer 
and how do we produce more excesses. And there appears to be no limit as to what they can desire. Very influential and powerful. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice and loftily and effortlessly have a power to threaten and oppress others. So they're either in high positions of high power or in today's terms, having the influence through a social media platform to name and shame effortlessly and condemning alternate views. Verse 9, they set their mouths against heavens, their tongues struts through the whole earth. They are like self-appointed superhumans with godlike arrogance. They're well-liked, popular, and in today's terms, perhaps millions of followers on Instagram who listen to every statement they make and view as unquestionable truth. Verse 10, what is worse is people, God's people, turns to them and finds no fault in them. And they say, what can God know about these matters? Because their views are higher than God's. Let's read verse 12. Summary. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. The church, they're living up life. They're wealthy. They have identity, they have popularity, they have influence in life. They even mock the faithful and even God himself. Yet they seem to have it all. And we come to verse 13, perhaps the lowest point of the psalm. Asaph says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain have I loved the Lord. All in vain have I followed the Lord's commandments and kept my heart clean. He's saying, I've wasted my time. What's going on? Aren't we meant to be the blessed ones? And as he looks over the fence, they're laughing and living it up. Why are they doing it so good? And I am doing it so tough, struggling in life, just trying to get through life. And we're left to ponder, what's wrong with me? And as Asaph looked on, he can't understand. It's all because of envy. He tries to make sense of the injustice, the wicked and the faithless, prosperous while the righteous suffers. They have health, the popularity, and their, their life is like the cover of a magazine. I'm going to show a picture here. Um, anyone know who he is? No? Well, he's Nick Molnar, the CEO and founder of Afterpay the biggest buy now, pay later business in Australia. And actually, Australia's youngest billionaire. Billionaire, all right? So that's a thousand million. <coughs> so he's, he's, as you can see from the picture, he's good looks, stylish, and uh, who at 31 is worth $2.2 billion. He's the CEO of a thousand staffs over three continents, a husband and father of two. And I came across a recent article in the Australian Financial Review reporting that, oh, he bought a, a 27 million cliff-top house in North Bondi. But not only that, within weeks of buying that property, next door, there were six apartments. Oh, it's up for sale. Ready for the redevelopment. So he bought that property for 18.5 million with plans to just combine the two together to make one massive giant property for himself and his family. And now, if I'm honest, accounts to these inevitably tug 
my heartstrings. But if unchecked, envy raises its ugly head. What would life like if I just had a fraction of what he has? Well, this morning, church, I'm going to take that picture off. <laughs> bit, bit distracting. All in vain. All in vain, that's right. <laughs> well, this morning, church, as you, as you come to church this morning, you may be coming with, with financial stress and unpaid bills and struggling just to make ends meet. And you look over the fence and wish if you could get a pay rise or perhaps even pay that debt off. Or this morning you come to church, you're getting on in age, and you've got sore, sore knees, sore hips, or maybe you're not even that old and you're having these problems. <laughs> or you're perhaps suffering from, from long-term sickness and, and illness and battling terminal illnesses, and you, suppose you spend most of your week in a doctor's clinic or even at home just resting up. And you look, look over the fence and you say, wow, I wish I could be just like them, carrying on normal daily activities. Or perhaps you come to church this morning with, with broken relationships, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your, your kids, and you look over the fence and you wish that your family was better functioning. Or this morning you may come lonely and struggling to be accepted as you are, whether in your workplace or, or school or community, and you look over the fence and wish for once that people would accept you. And church, the reality is that we are all so prone to envy. As we faithfully follow God, we may feel like other people are doing much better than we are. And my life is, doesn't seem to be as good as others. And we start to question, is God really good to me? And this morning as you come, you might be like, Asaph, all in vain have I, have I kept my heart clean and, and my hands washed in innocence. Has it all been in vain? Like Asaph, are you about to pull up stumps? Maybe you're not there yet. But I submit that there is a, a more subtle and sinister force at work. That as we look on in envy, as we follow Jesus, we might end up thinking that we live a constant, low-grade dissatisfaction to life, believing that we are living a secondary, inferior life to others. We think things could be better, so we're not excited about life. It feels like we're carrying a thousand kilograms on our shoulders. We moan, we complain, we're unthankful. It's living a, a joyless life. My friends, envy is real. It's a real joy robber. It leads us to doubt God and his goodness. What we then find is that envy and doubt affects every aspect of our Christian life and service. We'll end up likely questioning the value of commitment to God. What's the point of going to church? Or walking up to a small group during the week after a week of hard work and just struggling family life. What's the point of giving? I'm already doing it tough with all that's going on. What's the point of reading and, and praying? Just another thing to do. I might end up having an attitude of, oh God, why don't you just sort out my problems, my obstacles first, then I'll, then I'll come to you. 
The point is, church, there's a tendency and temptation for all of us to envy and doubt in our lives, if not every day as we look on at others. And there's a devastating effect for us who follow Jesus. It's so easy for us to think that we are living a secondary and inferior life. And I submit to you that no one's immune. We're all in the same boat, and no one gets a free pass. Whether you're 18 or 80, whether you're in 40K or 400K, the tendency to, to envy and doubt is indiscriminate as to age, as to wealth. And it easily robs us of the joy that we Christians have. But praise God, the psalm doesn't end here. He gives us a remedy. So point two, God, the joy giver. Read with me verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It's the turning point of the psalm, verse 16. It's a wearisome task to try, even try and understand this. There is no way to explain it until verse 17. He enters the sanctuary, then everything changed. As Asaph enters the God's sanctuary, he realizes two things. First, he recognizes their end. That one day, everyone, you and me, have to give an account to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And all these things that Asaph envied will have no value whatsoever on that day. And on the contrary, he realizes that the very people that he envied are actually set on slippery places and they will fall to ruin, verse 18. And then in verse 19, they will be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Because church, in reality, to the faithless, they face a dreadful and sudden end. Hebrews 10.31 puts it this way, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. On that day, Asaph realizes that the very thing he envied will have no value whatsoever, absolutely none. And he realizes, what is the point of all this? Well, literally four days after that article that I read about before about Nick Molnar, um, there was another article in the Australian Financial Review, and it's titled, Why Afterpay's Nick Molnar is an Anxious Man. Asked by the Financial Review how he'd feel if Afterpay's shares, now trading north of 100 bucks, were to drop to $9 again. And that happened in March 2020. And Nick concedes his biggest worry is that everything he has achieved, the success, the freedom, and the money, could all go away. This is what he said. This has happened really fast. So you feel like you're on a knife's edge. And you feel 
it can go away as fast as it all came. I feel like that every day. I wake up in the morning with the same level of anxiety that I woke up with on day one. Well, church, there is indeed little comfort and safety in the things of this world. All can be gone. And this is true, whether it's wealth, health, or position of influence or status. And I submit to you this morning, church, that there's something worse, something more dreadful than waking up and finding your wealth is gone. It is to wake up to eternity, to face the maker, and to realize that all things that you've worked for counts for nothing. That these things will not satisfy the wrath of the living God. And Asaph realizes, why would you even envy the faithless in their property and their position when they stand to face the judgment of the living God? So as Asaph enters his sanctuary, God's sanctuary, he recognizes therein. But not only that, he recognizes, number two, his great reality. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So Asaph confesses. He realizes that he has been brutish and ignorant and like a beast towards God. To envy the faithless is indeed ignorance. And he confesses and realizes something beautiful. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Asaph realizes that God is always there. In verse 23, we read that, God, I am continually with you. And even when he was doubting, God is with him. He's ever-present. Not one moment was his Lord not there for him. And so, church, you may be coming this morning envying, wishing, even doubting, lacking joy. But the reality is, God is with you. And he has been with you and continues to be with you, even when you are not aware he is there. And not only that, in verse 23 we read, he holds our right hand, and God, you guide me with your counsel. I remembered um, heading to Westfields, Hornsby, in uh, uh, the busy period for Christmas, pre-COVID. And I was holding Hudson and Ailis, brought Hudson and Ailis, two young kids, and, um, was it, and we got out of the car in a car park, and they looked around, they were scared. They had cars everywhere, horns, you know, big cars, you know, triple, quadruple their, their sizes, you know, trolleys going past, making all those rattling noises, and they looked around, they're scared. They have no idea where the cars are coming from, but there are, is a real comfort in to be able to hold my hands, hold Daddy's hands. And I submit life, can sometimes be like a one big car park kind of. We bump through 
life not knowing what's coming around the corner. But then to know that God, one whose hands flung stars into space, one who holds the ocean in the cusp of his hands, is holding our hands. The one who created order, who knows all things. The one where all source of knowledge comes from is the one who counsels us. We stumble and fall, but he is with us. But not only is he continually with us and holds our right hand, we read in verse 24, that afterward, you, God, will receive me into glory. On that day, Christ returns to judge. All our shame, all the oppression, all the wrongs done to us will be made right. But not only that, we will be received and accepted by the Holy One and there receive our commendation. We're going to read from Revelations 21, verse 1 to 6. and it's, it's, it's essentially a picture of what it will be like on that day. We've got it up on the slides, so you can just read off that. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without Well, church, that is what awaits you for everyone who follows Jesus. You are destined for glory. You're not destined for a, for a job promotion or the next new iPhone or the next million to be made. You are destined for an eternity with our Father, the source of all love, and all grace. And you are destined to spend an eternity with him in glory. The God whose, whose love reaches to the heavens, whose faithfulness reaches to the skies, the one who is all compassionate, the one who will wipe away every tear, every hurt, every pain from your eyes. 
and every day you spend with him, you realize more and more his love and his mercy for you is greater still. And every suffering and tear you shed on earth, he knows about that. And he'll place you with Christ as heir and co-heirs with Christ. Church, that is your destiny, that glory that awaits you. But that's not all. Asaph realizes that from the moment he enters the sanctuary, he realizes that it's all grace. Asaph actually spent more than half a psalm just complaining, envying, doubting. <clears throat> 16 verses out of the 28 verses. But then he enters the sanctuary and everything changed. He understood. He confesses and realizes that God is there all along. What's Asaph done? Absolutely nothing but envy and doubt. But he enters the sanctuary and he realizes that God is always there with him. What a beautiful picture of grace, isn't it, church? How kind is our God? This is our God. But Asaph realized that in the midst of all that doubting, all that complaining, God is there. And he's overcome with that truth. That even in his darkness, God is there. That though his heart is weak and may wander, whether today or, or tomorrow, he'll be holding him upholding him. And he comes to this conclusion in verse 25 and 26. Read with me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's his conclusion. There is nothing on earth that he desires. And church, what a beautiful expression of the all-sufficiency of the relationship with God. No health, no wealth, or station in life can ever come close to being compared to a relationship with the living God. This God who holds him, who counsels him, and provides him with refuge even when his heart is failing. And Asaph concludes, who do I have in heaven but you? Meaning, Lord, if, if heaven doesn't have you, I don't want to go there. God himself is his treasure. And that whilst I am here on this earth, there is nothing I desire more than you. No riches, no honor, no friends, no, no, no fame. Everything pales in comparison. Nothing is as valuable as a very promise in the presence of God. And as Asaph realizes that, all trouble, all turmoil is gone. And all that was replaced by joy, a deep-seated sufficiency of God to him. That he has communion with God. And that that is the sweetest thing. That there is nothing more rewarding, more joyful, than knowing him, because he is truly the one who satisfies. And this morning, church, as you listen to all that, you might say, yeah, that's, that's good, Andrew. 
but you know what? I don't, I don't feel it. I, I know it here. I don't, I don't feel it. I still got mouths to feed. I still got sore bones and joints and aches. I want to genuinely echo the cry of Asaph, but I don't. So we come to point three. Sanctuary, the place of joy. We see that Asaph entered the sanctuary of God. Then everything changed. He spent time with God and with his people, and joy returned to him. And church, that's the same lesson for us. That as we enter his sanctuary, we will find joy. And how much more this side of the cross You see, Asaph ministered under the old covenant, under the law which God gave Moses. And under the law, Asaph needed the blood of of bulls and rams as a sacrifice for his sin to approach God. And even for him, as he entered the sanctuary, which is the tabernacle, he could only do that that through the blood of, 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 of bulls and rams and that his sins have been taken care of before he can get into there. And only the priest gets to do that. Right? So the, the, the Israelites, the, nor- the normal guys in, in the community cannot do that. Only the priest gets to do that. And for Asaph, he could really only get to the, the most holy place where the ark is situated, um, which is directly the, the presence of God. He can only do that once a year. So I guess my, my point here is that under the old covenant, before Jesus, yes, God is in the midst of his people, but access to him is limited. And the old covenant was only a, a pointer to Christ. And no amount of blood of rams and bulls can take away the sin of your worshiper, Hebrews 10.1. Well, church, we live on the other side of the cross. And coming out of Easter just last week, we remember that Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins. He was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. When he died on the cross, he took the punishment for our sins. Through the cross, Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath was poured out onto Jesus himself. And Christ bore the full wrath of God instead of us. He was indeed pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But not only that, through Jesus, we've been justified. We've been declared right before him, before God. Jesus has done it. That Jesus has opened the way that we have unlimited access to God. What a wonderful blessing. On Jesus' death, we remember that the curtain that separated the, the most holy place and the holy place was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that people can now have direct access to God through Jesus, our high priest. Well, church, this morning, we too need to enter his sanctuary, the very presence of God, the place of joy. How do we do that? We do that corporately every Sunday as we come to church. 
would come to meet us, his people, to meet the living God. We come to hear the gospel preached. We come to sing gospel-saturated songs to remind ourselves that God is good to us and that God is in our midst as we meet. It's truly the best day of the week. We can come to enter his sanctuary as we gather in our gospel community groups during the week, our small groups during the week, to come to fellowship as we meet in two to three people gathered. He is in our midst as we love each other, as we encourage one another, as we walk this race together. God is in our midst. We enter his sanctuary. But we can also enter his sanctuary individually when we spend time with him reading his word, praying, and communicating to the one who loves us. So all these things become a means of grace to, to know him, a way to communicate with him, to spark a desire for him, and to incline our hearts towards him. And as we do that, joy will fill your heart. So going to church, attending midweek fellowship groups, Bible reading, prayer, all these are simply means of grace or tools to, for us to know him. It's no longer primarily about getting acceptance before him, doing these things to get acceptance before him. It's no longer about doing these things to, to be holy, um, to improve ourselves. That's not the end goal. The end goal of all these things are to enjoy God. It's about Bible reading, prayer, coming to church. It's no longer a chore. It becomes a delight. And saints, that is the most precious gift we had. And those things should lead to a spring in our steps, a sparkle in the eye, as we truly come to delight in him. Joy will fill your life. Now, for those who have been in Southern Grace since the beginning, you'd know that 2011 was one of the, the deepest and darkest valley of, of my life to date. <clears throat> At that time, um, my wife of nearly eight years left. I came home one day, and uh, she was gone. And, and she told me that she has moved out. And uh, we had just finished um, some major renovations with a house in Linfield that we kind of bought back then, uh, thinking that, well, hey, we'll start a family here. Um, but that all changed uh, when she left. And it was as if my heart was, was ripped out. Um, and tears and heartache filled um, many days in, in that year. Not days, not, not weeks, um, but month after month. And uh, often I'd, I'd lay in bed, and my mind would wonder, you know, what if, what if? And um, I don't think I've, I've shed more tears in that year of my life than I probably have in all of my life. <clears throat> and there was a real temptation to, to end these, to look over the fence and to look at other families who had kids or other happy families who had it all together. But looking back, um, I wouldn't wish that experience on anyone here. But at the same time, 
it's something that I would probably not wish away. It's not my um, lot to, to wish it away anyway. But in this period of trial and distress, God became sweeter than anything else to me. At that time, I was only a few months old into Sovereign Grace. And uh, as I struggled, this brother here, Brendan, um, came alongside me, along with you know, Dave and the other guys, but particularly Brendan, because he, 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 moved, in, he moved in to Linfield with me. <laughs> really, I had no choice. And on days I stumbled, I remembered he would point me to Jesus. Keep running, he'd say. Keep walking. Keep leaning. And church became a, a real source of joy to me. And often, in those weeks where I come, I'd be, I'd be in tears. But tears, not because I feel sorry for myself, but tears because I'm just overwhelmed with his grace towards me. I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve your love, Jesus. But you died on the cross. You suffered. You endured the pain. And you loved me. So the gospel and Jesus moved my heart more than it ever did. I was hungry for his word, and my Lord met me early in the morning with his promises and with his comfort. On nights where I can't sleep, I turn the, the music on, and gospel saturated songs will come and fill my head to put me to sleep. That was entering his sanctuary. And Jesus became sweeter than honey to know that he is all sufficient in all of my life. With God, his word, and his church, everything else is a bonus. And by God's grace, I was able to say, whom have I in heaven but you? But God is the strength of my heart and my treasure forevermore. Church, it's true. This morning, whether you're walking through sickness, whether it's temporary or, or terminal, whether you're walking through financial distress, family dysfunctions, or loneliness, if you follow Jesus, you have the best portion in life. Enter his sanctuary. Come into the very presence of God and be on a journey with him. Enjoy him, the living God. Enjoy him. Drink from his fountain. And there receive the joy awaiting you. There is indeed nothing more satisfying, more rewarding, and joyful than knowing him because he is truly the one who satisfies. So in conclusion, indeed, there is a, a lesson for us all to learn this morning from Psalm 73. A lesson from Asaph, that as we look over the fence, we're so tempted to envy, to wish better things in our lives as we look on at others. 
and then we end up doubting the goodness of God to us. And no one is immune. But through the work of Jesus, through his dying on the cross, that those who follow him can come and boldly approach our King and our Father. And there find the sweetest of fellowship with him. Like Asaph, as we enter the sanctuary, everything will change. Enter his sanctuary and come and join me and proclaim, like with Asaph and other many saints that's gone before us and saints today, that whom have I in heaven but you, that there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. He is indeed my better portion in all of my life. Let's pray. Well, Father, indeed, you are the better portion in all of life. Who do we have in heaven but you? If you're not there, Lord, we don't want to be there. We just want you. And Lord, as we gaze upon you, may the, the attractions and the, and the flashy lights of this world become dim in comparison to knowing you. Because, Lord, nothing can compare to knowing you. Nothing is better. So, Lord, this morning, for those who are weak or, or struggling, Lord, we pray that you will help us to enter your sanctuary. Enter into the very presence of you, the living God, who loves and who cares, whose, cap, whose, whose compassion exceeds all things. And to, as we come, that we will find joy, unspeakable joy, this day and the day to come. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.